0: This is Rudy Rucker, and this is a talk that I gave at the University of California at Santa Cruz on March 6th, 2018. I was speaking to Tim Fitzmaurice's class. Enjoy. That's my kick this week, panpsychism. That's the idea that everything is alive. I gave, I mean,
1: a, I gave a handout to all my classes.
0: This cookie's alive. Yeah. And if everything's alive, then you're not alone. That's a good way to feel. Yeah. Well, there's this this guy called Gustav Fechner. He wrote about panpsychism in the uh, 1800s. And it was sort of a popular belief back then, but then the industrial age hit and the computer age. And people are like, well, machines are what matter and mechanism and computation. And they used to say, well, you know, life, everything in the world is sort of, has this sort of glow in it. And they'd say, well, if an atom knows to move towards an atom, Thomas Edison said this, then it has a tiny mind, you know, a little tiny mind in at each atom. And uh, it's, a, it's an interesting belief. Um, and it's, if you think like the dirt is alive and the, The plants or if they're conscious in some some sort of way that makes you have more of an environmental attitude I mean if like when you see you know if they're gouging out some hillside and totally trashing it it's kind of painful to see that and then if you're a a panpsychic then you're saying well that the hill actually feels this it's feeling that this is an unpleasant thing and then it's uh, it makes you maybe a little more reluctant to to treat the world as some piece of crap that's here for us to, to use up and just try to get our, our space mission together before we trash the whole thing. But that's, that's not the main topic I came to talk about today. Whenever, I, I am always looking for things that I can get some sort of empathy with in my environment. And there's this thing in mathematics and physics that they call chaos. And that's when you have a system that's behaving in a way that's not entirely predictable. And examples of this would be a candle flame or a trickle of water coming out of a faucet or some leaves that are blowing in the wind or air currents or human life. And these things are chaotic in that they're obeying rules. They're not moving randomly, but they're not predictable because... They're just such finely-tuned, intricate systems that even if you make a computer simulation of one, the simulation will run, in fact, slower than the real world. It's, you can't keep up with it because it's, it's just got so much crunch, our actual physical world. And so if I'm in somewhere like an airport, I'm always looking around, is there anything here? Is there any scrap of chaos here that I can look at? And uh, I mean, if all else fails, you can look, at the, the cloth, on the chair. Uh, it's, uh, it's disheartening at airports that they have this form of mind control. Of, they want to have TVs running. There's so many places you go and they have televisions running and they're they sort of wanting you not to, to be thinking about anything more physical and chaotic. But certainly human beings are the, probably the most interesting things that we run into. In daily life, I just
1: to a in, the, uh, you know, in the prison snack bar, they play Rachel Ray on TV during lunch. You know Rachel the Cook. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that's maddening. sort of. It's maddening to see this. In, yeah. Because uh, it's. Way to turn it off. You're not allowed to touch that. Of course though.
0: not. Yeah, it's siphoning off your attention.
1: Right. I uh, maybe we should begin.
0: Yes, I had really mm, parallel careers. Uh, I always wanted to be a writer. Uh, even in high school, I I knew I wanted to be a writer. And then, it's hard to make a living with writing, even if you're moderately successful. I've published 40 books, but I never made enough money to completely support myself. So either, well, for a while, I, I didn't have another job. My wife was working, and we were living very meagerly in in a small town in Virginia. But generally speaking, I needed more money and I was a professor, that was my other job. You could say that was my day job. And I taught mathematics, I had a PhD in mathematics and I taught mathematics for about 10 years and then I moved out to California and I got a job at San Jose State. And uh, they had a, this was in 1986 and at that time Computer science was a relatively new field. Generally, people didn't have degrees in it. Often, people who were doing it had never had a course in it. They just sort of started doing it. So at San Jose State, the math department and the computer science department were the same department. And so they told me, well, if, if you'll teach computer science instead of math, we'll pay you 10% more. And I said, well, okay, I wanna do it because it, it, sounds, it sounds exciting. Because it's, it's going to be different. And I liked teaching computer science and learning it because it had... Uh, so I ended up teaching it for about 20 years. And uh, I like the experimental aspect of computer science. In math, uh, if you're trying to prove something and your proof is wrong, then you don't really have anything. The, the proof's no good, you know. And in computer science... If you have a program and it has a bug, but it runs a little bit, then you might see something interesting. At least, you know, there's this old saying: "It's not a bug; it's a feature." You can sort of assimilate it and maybe make something cool out of it. And I always liked—I uh, I, I like visual things, and I always—I liked doing visual computer programs. I like doing fractals and cellular automata, and then I got into programming simple video games. And that was a course I taught a lot, software engineering, about how to write your own video game. And uh, so that was fun. But a lot of the deeper ideas that I've written science fiction about came from mathematics. And I always had this sort of mystical side to my personality. I always wanted to, even before the sixties I was already like that. <laughs> I wanted to you know see God and you know experience ultimate reality and and all this cool stuff and so I was attracted to aspects of mathematics that had to do with things like that, and the two that attracted me the most were higher dimensions, like the fourth dimension and the other was infinity, because these are both these sort of spacey concepts and then but somehow they're in mathematics, and they've made a sort of organized ways of describing them and talking about them, and that uh, I, I like that a lot. So uh, a lot of the not a lot of the science fiction I've written has has related to those two things: higher dimensions and infinity. And then the other thing, an element that's come in a lot, is uh, intelligent machines, because that's Something even before I was teaching computer science that was you know very clearly in the air, starting in the 50s and then increasing ever since then. This idea of uh, can we have robots that are intelligent? Uh, could the robots be conscious? Uh, could we take our mind and put it onto a robot? And that was one of the, the first really successful science fiction novels I wrote. It was called Software and it came out in 1982. And that, uh, it's sort of a famous novel, because it was, there's this idea that you've seen it a million times now in movies, where there'll be somebody that they're sick, or they're dying, or they just want to do something different, and they'll extract the programs out of their brain, and then they'll put it into an android, like a robot, and then the robot will behave just like them, and then you've got this kind of question, well, is that really the same person, you know, did they get the whole thing, and... uh, but that, that whole idea, I was the first person to write about that in science fiction. It's, you might even say I invented the idea, though that's probably too much to say. But uh, So the software, it was a guy where, uh, he was a computer designer, and he was modeled on my father, who was an alcoholic. And uh, his name was Embry Cobb Rucker, he wasn't always an alcoholic, he wasn't like a gutter alcoholic, but he, he had some problems. <laughs> and, uh, and I myself at times in my life have had that problem, but uh, I'm better now. And, uh, but anyway, so I had this character called Cobb Anderson, who's like living on the beach in, in Florida, drinking sherry. And this was this idea, the government ran out of money for the old people. The book is set in 2020, actually, which seemed like a long time in the future when I wrote this book in 1980. And uh, instead of they sort of run out of social security money, so they just they just gave Florida to the old people. You know, they can live there; they don't have to pay rent. They they drop food from planes every now and then. And uh, then these robots show up and. Uh, He designed them, and there's a race of robots living on the moon. And uh, one of the questions, there's this interesting point, can we create a program as intelligent as us? Well, for various reasons, the answer is no. Uh, And now, whenever, but we can let one evolve. Most of the programs now that do something pretty good, like facial recognition or speech recognition, They're based on something that's called neural nets. It's a type of computer programming. And it's not this dream that you write down a bunch of lines describing how the program's gonna work. Instead, you get this basically, it's kind of like just a network, a bunch of dots with lines between them and different weights on each line. And you run some numbers through there and it adds and multiplies and subtracts and you get a number coming out. But nobody has, what's the best way to program it? We don't know. So what you do is you make, you know, a hundred of them and give them each the same problem and then the ones that do better, you say, okay, let's make mutations of these guys and throw out the other ones. Then you do it again and then you say, let's take the best ten and then mutate those and then do it again. And you do this thousands of times. And eventually you get a neural network that can do something. It can recognize the letter A even recognize a B. The post office uses that now. Even handwriting, they can recognize. You know, No matter how scungy your writing is, this thing can look at it and figure out. And the program to do that is not a program that's based on sort of logic in the sense that you're breaking it into lines and curves and anything. It's just this big pile of numbers. It's just a bunch of dots with little numbers on the lines between them. And so that's what I mean when I say we can't really write a program that's as smart as us we can evolve them. And so that's the trick, that's the way to get the smart machines you have to let them evolve. The the, the catch is that we evolved on earth over whatever, you know, 100 million years, a long time. And earth that's a big piece of hardware, you know, it's we've got an octillion atoms and they they're going all day long, all the time, you know, this huge mass. And so then you say, well, I'm gonna get this little chip here that cost me $100, and I'm gonna evolve the human race. Well, that's, you know, that's actually not gonna happen very rapidly. So we will get to the intelligent machines, but it's, it's a lot of crunch, it's a lot of evolving. So in my novel, there's these intelligent robots on the moon, and they actually have evolved, and that's the way that we've done it. We just put them up there. And one thing that helps in evolution is if you're reproducing. So the robots have factories and they're building new robots so that they've got the reproduction. And you know, they're competing, they're killing each other, they're mating, they're blending programs, they're acting like we act. And uh, so then this old guy, Cobb Anderson, the guy who designed them, uh, the robots get him to come up to the moon and then they cut open his skull and they take his brain out and then they slice it up and they get a map of it, then they grind it up and get all the the chemicals that were in there and get a complete map of it, and then they get a software copy of it. So that's the the thing, the the dream, that was the first time anybody wrote about that. So they have his software, then uh, the way they put it, they have a robot that looks like him down on earth, and so then they have to put the program onto the robot, and they do that. software. So uh the slogan on the cover of the book it said preserve your software the rest is meat. <laughs> so uh so that was that was cool. So that was so that I mentioned there were three things I was interested in and one was infinity, the other is the higher dimensions and the other was uh robot consciousness. Now I started writing and uh it was I knew I wanted to write a novel and I didn't know how, and then I basically just did it.
1: How old were you when you just sort of took
0: over? I was about 29 or 30. Really? So you started a little late. Yeah, I, I uh, I didn't have the nerve to do it. I guess the thing that got me started, I went to a Rolling Stones concert at an outdoor arena in Buffalo, New York, and at that time, I think Nixon was president. And I was sort of a hippie, an anarchist, a pre-punk. I really hated the government a lot. And then to see Mick and Keith up on stage, I know for you all these are old men, it's like talking about Frank Sinatra, you know, but (laughs) for me it was just, yay! And somehow that gave me the energy and I went home and I wrote a novel in a a month or two. In
1: a month or two? Yeah. What novel did you write?
0: It was called Space Time Donuts.
1: Space Time Donuts. Yeah. Yeah. Which is still available.
0: It is, yeah. All of my books are available in one form or another, in e-books, if nothing else.
1: Yeah, you go online and find online.
0: Yeah, and some of it is free. Actually, that book I was just talking about, software, there's this thing, the geekier of you will have heard of, there's something called uh, Creative Commons, CC, have you heard of that? That's like a book that you put online and it's free. So I actually wrote up, I like these these brain-eating robots a lot, so I wrote four novels about them. There's software, and then there's wetware, which is set in Louisville, my hometown. Then the gnarliest is called freeware, and that's mostly set in Santa Cruz. And freeware is where you get some software and it's free, but maybe you don't really want it, (laughs) because what it is, it's like a cosmic ray that comes through space. And then when it hits a computer, it, it's like a zip file and it unpacks and it's actually an alien an alien mind. Mm-hmm. So it's uh it was free. <laughs> yeah. But uh and then uh, the last was realware. So the four of them make the wear tetralogy. And if you Google Rudy Rucker Ware Tetralogy, you can find free copies of it. Mm-hmm. Or actually if it's you go really worth Oh, it's a masterpiece. It's a fucking it's masterpiece.
1: My, my <laughs> Wonderful. Um, I I just loved, and uh, yeah. that was the first book that I read. Right. Yeah, yeah. No, it's just really fun.
0: I, I don't think I could write those books anymore. I've been I'm more well, civilized well, now.
1: Yeah, you're too stable. Yeah. Uh, no, I want to ask you about that because your your approach to writing was not classic sci-fi. It wasn't. No. you know, Let's have the robots, and we'll we have a little dystopia. Let's just solve a problem here and and work it out. That, you know. Sort of iRobot
0: kind of. Yeah, no. Was, you know, well, I've always been full of bitterness and hatred.
1: And you're full of bitterness <laughs> and hatred? Yeah. I've well,
0: well, it has to do of the time when I came up. I graduated from college in 1967. And it's just a lot of people have sort of forgotten about this. They just think, oh, it was fun, flower children. But the, the a lot of the country very actively hated my generation. Like, I had long hair, you know and people would yell at me on the street. And uh, there was this guy called Spiro Agnew, he was the vice president, and he would talk about putting us in death camps. you know. And then they started this war in Vietnam for, as no, for no reason, as we now all know, but at the time it was this big patriotic thing. And I was supposed to go and let them send me there and die for no fucking reason. And if I didn't wanna go, I was a coward and a traitor. <laughs> And you don't forget a thing like that, you know? I'm, I'm sure many of you, you know, you come from other cultures, and probably you've had things like that in your own cultures. And it's where the government just goes completely out of control and treats you like an enemy. And these days, you know, <laughs> we're kind of getting into that again, you know?
1: Yeah. And uh, so this, You had a reaction to that when you started writing.
0: Well, it was, yeah, I mean, and at that time, science fiction had gotten very... Stale. It was like I don't know. It was like David Bowie or glam rock, arena. This, all the books were about people who were hereditary aristocrats, and they were colonels in the Space Navy. <laughs> and that's not where I was at. You know, I hated the military. I didn't want to be in the army. You know, kill the pig. That was our slogan, and uh, it was very political then. And for a reason, because they were trying to kill us, and it's, you react to that. So, uh, and science fiction, as I say, had gotten sort of bloated. And so there was this movement that began among science fiction writers. And at the time, uh, I didn't realize it was a movement, because I was helping to start it. We hadn't even verbalized what it was, but it came to be called cyberpunk. And the most famous cyberpunk is William Gibson. And then his novel Neuromancer was one of the the first really ones to hit big. And then Bruce Sterling, also very eminent cyberpunk. And then there was me and a guy called John Shirley. He's a good writer. He's a pretty good friend of mine. He's a complete nut, but uh, it's fun to hang out with him. And, uh, they
1: might run in the group, actually.
0: Well, yeah, I think it's, writers often, they're not... It's you know like musicians are weird, artists are weird, writers are, you know there's every computer people so there's every everything where you really get very far into some craft or art. Yeah, you, you tend to leave part of ordinary the ordinary world behind. Well,
1: let me ask you about Wade Gibson because you actually say at one point this will get into the transreal thing, but you actually said at one point somewhere that in an interview or whatever that in some sense you came up with transreal. Because you want to distinguish yourself from William Gibson, who's just like this giant of Mm -hmm. cyberpunk. And and as Rudy says, it's a fairly small group of authors, even though if you you look at their aesthetic, you're talking about Philip K. Dick's aesthetic. You're talking about an aesthetic of drugs and sex and the wildness of real social life, you know, the way people actually live, poverty, you know, social issues, things like that, that have all all of a sudden been invested in, in... in, in science fiction, you know, and it's it's a fairly healthy version of sci-fi, you know. Well, you, you came up with this trans real kind of notion.
0: Yeah, I'll, yeah. Well, I'll get to that in just a second, okay. but let me just say a little bit more about cyberpunk. Okay. Um, one of the things that drove it was, starting in the '80s, we were entering this phase where people and machines had been merging, and that's happening more and more. Uh, we're entering the age of biotech now and uh, I got to look at some of your old stories before. I just had you know about 15 minutes, half an hour and a lot of them are about medical or biological things and there's a lot of anxiety in those stories. And uh, it's again, it's that thing it's like they're pushing it even further, this merging of machines and biology and humanity. It's, it's not something that we're comfortable with and quite rightly not. It's uh, people that make machines are usually trying to make money and that's maybe not what you want to do. You want to be a happy organism. <laughs> mm-hmm. But it was starting in the 80s and then that's sort of The machines were being more like people, and there's sort of pressure on the people to make act more like machines, you know. So, uh, so that was the cyber part, and then the punk part was, as I was saying, there was this reaction against having uh, mil- glorifying military people and glorifying uh, uh, noble people or you know upper class people or uh, rich titans of industry. And wanting to write about just the this this the skeevy people that you hung around with in your daily life. You know, just these regular people who were not necessarily, you know, at the top of anything. Like that my friends, they weren't top <laughs> scientists and they weren't rich and they weren't famous. They were just guys that I, and women that I would hang around with and we'd get drunk and smoke pot. And uh that was you know we weren't we weren't heroes of the navy, so those, and that was the punk aspect the uh the cyber part and the punk aspect we see let's let's write about the merger of humans and machines but let's let's not glorify scientists you know let's not glorify uh the one percenters let's just have it be punk about regular people you know with real lives and then uh and that Tim just mentioned there's this other aspect of the science fiction that I call transrealism. And it wouldn't be accurate to say I invented it to try to outdo William Gibson. Uh, that's, you know, I like what William Gibson does, but I don't feel in any real direct competition with him. I really honor I what he does. Were,
1: I thought you said in the interview it was like you were distinguishing yourself from...
0: Well, I might have said that, saying, yeah. you know, at any given time.
1: You might say anything at yeah. any given time. Yeah.
0: Hi, guys. You're just in time.
1: It's like the second shift's coming on the night.
0: Yeah. Come on down, please.
1: Don't don't block up the stairway. We hope that people will come in, and you're allowed to come and go as you please. You don't have to be by the door to leave early or anything. Uh, can I just talk about the word punk for a minute?
0: Yeah. Or should we just take? Let's take two or three minutes off until people settle down. All right. Come on in, guys. There's a lot of room down here. Okay, so I'm Rudy, I'm the rude dog, Uh, not necessarily, it's, I don't know, can you see me, or am I just this looming silhouette, you can see me, yeah, I'm Rudy Rucker, and uh, I've been kindly invited by Crown College to hold forth about writing and uh, some of the things that interest me in society, and uh, as I was saying, I'm a a science fiction novelist, and also uh, I worked as a computer science professor at San Jose State for 20 years, and I studied mathematics when I was younger. And we were just getting onto the topic of certain kinds of science fiction I've been involved with, and one of them is cyberpunk, and that's uh, a lot of the movies you see, well, like Blade Runner, for instance. You could call that a cyberpunk movie, where it's sort of dark and but kind of glamorous and you've got these real funky stuff like the, the holograms. How many of you saw the new Blade Runner? Oh, quite a few of you. Okay. Yeah, I really love that scene when the guy, he's this sort of nebbish and he comes home and he has a wife but what his wife is it's like this track on the ceiling with a camera, a hologram projector on it and it sort of comes rolling out along the ceiling and there's this woman you know in this sort of 1960s ad kind of outfit with the poofy skirt with like a, and she's carrying a little casserole of food and <laughs> she puts the food down and before the hologram gets on top of the food you see it's this totally disgusting, like it's a bunch of like fish eyeballs and tentacles, you know, it's, and then zang, the, the hologram gets on top of it and it's this nice tidy, you know, ladies home journal type Jello dessert with little cubes of Jello and curtain, really nice looking stuff, and she's all cute and bouncy, and you know then she'll, she'll like click and then she'll change her outfit will change, and that was a that's sort of a cyberpunk thing, where we've got this conversion of reality. There's the physical reality and we're overlaying this illusory reality onto it. That's the the hologram, and then the punk aspect of it is that you're in this completely grotty, grotty apartment and you're eating fish eyeball, eyeballs, and you're having sex with, I, I, it wasn't clear to me how he had sex with this hologram woman. I mean, maybe he had like a big pillow with a hole in it, you know? <laughs> it's just something really low end and punk, you know? It's not <laughs> not the romance that he'd be seeing. So uh, Another thing I liked in that movie, just to, to milk this a little bit more, There's this idea of, uh, the punk thing is this idea of our culture not necessarily being on our side and but using us and pushing us down and and, uh, crushing us. And when this guy, this, this sort of hero of the book, of the movie, he's out on his own in the street, there's this really big hologram of the woman who's been his wife. It turns out she's sort of a basic model, you know, it's like, you know, a Ford or a Kawasaki or a, you know, it's like this sort of thing you can get, and uh, an iPhone, but the one in the street is like 60 feet high, and you know, she's you know really just gorgeous, and it's, she's the same one in a sense, it's probably in the cloud, the personality, she recognizes him, and she leans over to him, and that's the still they used for the advertising, she's like this... 60-foot-high hologram woman leaning over him and holding out her finger to, you know, like sort of, aren't you cute, you know? And that's, that's sort of how Google is when they do something. They put up a little hello, a happy face on your page when you, you're looking at something. You know, they they know you're there. They control you. They know all about you. They go, oh, aren't you cute? And so then, what do we do about it? Well, that's cyberpunk, you know? We have to... We have to try to be our own selves and, and take over whatever autonomy we can possibly find. And uh, so that's one type of science fiction that I like a lot. And uh, again, I mentioned you, you could read my cyberpunk novels if you go to rudyrucker.com/slash/wares. You can either you can get them free, actually, a lot of them, which is sort of a cyberpunk thing to do—to give away your work because it's like in Russia. They used to have something called Samizdat where people would just give a novel to somebody and people would Xerox and pass it on because the idea is to try to change society. And this is a time when America is really in a very dangerous period and more than, more than at any time, uh, perhaps uh, during the Nixon years it was pretty bad too, but it's a time when we really need to be careful to stand up for our rights and uh, keep fighting back. And, and don't give in. Because you tend to imagine that a democracy, it's a done deal, you, know, you get your freedom, there's this constitution and you have your rights and that's all done. And now uh, what we see these days is you know, c- certain people, I won't even say their name, are trying to push things back, take away our rights, you know, keep, repress us, take away things we thought were established, you know, the right to control your body, the, the right to, to live where you want to. And take that away, and uh, so it's not. You're never safe. You think you're. You get lulled, and you think we have a safe society. We have a safe democracy, and it's not. It's only every generation you have to win the freedom back, and so that's a, a sort of cyberpunk. Do you think thing.
1: that uh, so you think science fiction it can be an activist way of encountering the world? Because some of your some of your writing is really sort of uh, some of your. Some comments from your interviews have said, uh, I'm done with politics, I can't deal with it. You have a way of sort of throwing up your hands about politics. But do you think there's like a political engagement that's possible with science fiction that might not even be possible with mainstream fiction or with other types of...
0: Well, I think so. Because science fiction, it's it's very good at showing you how a world could be, you know? And uh, imagining how things could be a lot better or a lot worse the sort of thought experiment aspect of science fiction. And uh, when I say I don't want to write about politics, <coughs> I think sometimes what I mean by that is I don't want to write directly about politics. Uh, because if, I, if I'm in a mode where I'm just continually reacting to <coughs> the latest you know, White House press release, mm-hmm. then I'm playing their game. They own me all I'm doing is thinking about you know this thing that they're doing. And it should be possible at some point to turn your back on it. Cory Doctorow published a novel last winter called Walk Away, and that was exactly, that was the theme it was about. It was about a future society that's become much more repressive than, than we are now. Things really, sometimes we get, I can get worked up about it, but you read science fiction, you can read about places that are really a whole lot worse off. But uh, in a world like that, there's a movement called Walk Away, where people walk out of the cities and they go out and uh, you know build their own semi-utopias out in the countryside. And that was uh, that was also a movement in the 60s too, people getting into communes. So the Walk Away movement is a, a way of getting out of the, the political system. So uh, personally, I. You know, there's a lot of things I like about being in society. You know, I like the internet, I like TV, I like good restaurants, you know, I like going to the movies, I like buying clothes, you know. There's a, uh, you sort of need a society to some extent. Like one individual ant, there's not much an ant on its own can do, you know. So that's, we are these sort of hive creatures. But. Um, Science fiction is a, a way of, of, can be a way, of trying to promote a freer society.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, maybe just, uh, just to get started over it, a little over again. You're the great-grandson of Hegel, George Hegel. Mm-hmm. Hegel is the last uh, comprehensive philosopher in the Western tradition, I think. He's the one that, from beginning to end, he, he created philosophy from beginning to end, and, and looked at all, every different aspect of philosophy. You, you know Michael called him an epistemologist, but he was an ontologist he was everything mm-hmm. he was one of those he was one of the rare philosophers who everything and he might be the last one actually there's another guy around but the point is what do you make of that that relationship is something that you do talk about
0: well yeah he's my three great triple great grandfather and uh i I have to confess I have not managed to read uh the book I'd like to read all of would be Phenomenology of the Mind. That's his big book. And uh, it's very dense. And uh, well then I, I tell myself, well maybe if Hegel was alive he'd be writing science fiction. That's a possibility. And he
1: kinda of did in some respects. Mm-hmm. He kinda of wrote up to some... well, the historical dialectic is kind of science fiction. Yeah, he, he actually could he actually had his own little ways, but you know, master slave relationships or things like that. Things that he did that were
0: he had one analogy I liked a lot. Uh, he said, uh, when I want to see an oak tree, I want to see the full vigor of the trunk and the flowering leaves. I'm not satisfied to be shown an acorn. And that's, I've always, I thought about that a lot over the years because an acorn really is an oak tree, but you just need to add a lot of computation. You know, in and, and the sense that a growing organism is carrying out a natural computation. So it's, it's kind of nice that we can grow things like that. Um, something backing up just a little, I'd mentioned there were two types of science fiction I'm interested in, and one is, as I say, cyberpunk, and the other is, uh, is transrealism. And that's a word, uh, I made the word up so it's safe, I can say it means whatever I want it to. And, uh, but what I mean by it is uh, rather than just writing, the thing about like something like Star Trek that sort of leaves me cold is the characters, they're not, they're not really like people I know, they're not very rich, they're not very richly detailed. I'm, some people, if you really get into it, you could argue with that. You could say, well, the captain does such and such. But I, I, like, the, I like a science fiction book where the characters are more like actual people and it's almost like, what if I wrote a realistic novel about my life or the life of the people around me, you know with all the the sounds we were talking about this before, the smells, the sounds, the the little details that you see, the quirks of people's personalities, and then but then add in something science fictional, and it's not necessarily just adding it in. you don't just clump, here's a time machine. what are they going to do? Uh, you can do that, but I think it's nice if. The science fictional element that you add in some way uh, represents something that's important to the people's psyche. Like people don't like the idea of dying, so it's some appeal to have science fiction where people find some some trick of making themselves immortal, or the idea of time travel really has to do with the idea why that's important to us is because we would like to go back to our past. You'd like to go back to your family. You'd like to go back to the good old days in high school. That's the past In the future. You'd like to be able to find out what happens. So these are these sort of scientific things that stand for things that are important to you. Now there's not really that much difference between science fiction and fairy tales. In fairy tales, they just call it something else. You know, in, in, in science fiction, I have this wand that this matter manipulator and then in, in in a fairy tale, it's a magic wand, you know, or in science fiction, you levitate or you, you have an air car. In in a fairy tale, you have, you know, a magic flying carpet or you have, uh, you know, wings. So a lot of these things, we we like the idea of these powers and we like the idea of thinking about how they would change their lives. So that's uh, an aspect of science fiction that I like too. And I think... When you you see good science fiction now, it's it's things where you tend to feel like it's about real people.
1: Mm-hmm. Is there good science fiction right now? People you could recommend?
0: Well, I mentioned that book by uh, Cory Doctorow, *Walk Away*, yeah. and then there's a book by a guy called Chris Brown, and it's called uh, *The Tropic of Kansas*, and that's an extremely political uh, novel. It's where there's pretty much a state of out-and-at war between civil war and the United States, between, you know, the repressive government and the rebels. And that's a, an interesting book to read. The Tropic, it's a strange title, The Tropic of Kansas. You know, you'd think Tropic of Cancer, Tropic of Capricorn, it's Tropic of Kansas. But it's a, it's a very cool book. And uh, whatever William Gibson does is always worth reading. His most recent one was called The Peripheral. And that was... Uh, and again, where he really excels at doing the transreal thing, because all his characters, you know, they're like somebody in a small town, you know, a woman, her brother's a vet and she works as a waitress, you know, and it's just these very down-home, regular kinds of people, like you might know. And the trick in the peripheral, one of the things that's hard to write about is time travel. People are always trying to do time travel. And there's always all these rat holes you can fall into. You know what, if I go back and kill my grandfather, then I wouldn't be here, so I didn't kill him, so then I can go back in time and kill him. And you get these sort of loops, and it's.
1: These are, you made lists of the tropes of science fiction. Yes. uh, Online, you can read read, uh, Rudy's essays.
0: It's an essay called What Do Science Fiction Writers Want? What do they want, yeah.
1: What do science fiction writers want? And there's like a list of the tropes and I've, I've given out that list. I gave it out in prison and I gave it out in my class. Sort of, I've given it out to people just so they can look at it. And these are the usual things that people often write about uh-huh. in science fiction. And they include things like time
0: travel. And telepathy. And telepathy. Telepathy is a big one because you, you always have this dream that people might understand what you were talking about, you know like your family at least, if if only they could hear me. <laughs> and uh, telepathy, and uh, what would telepathy be like? Uh, not clear. Part of it is empathy, that's something that I've found hard to learn. Uh, I have more empathy than I did when I was 20. You all probably don't have much empathy, <laughs> maybe a little. But if you have children, they, they sort of beat it into you. <laughs> and if you have jobs and get fired and you know go through all the all the ups and downs of life, uh, empathy is you know to see other people from the inside, which is uh, it's easy to say, but I've just I always have found it hard to do for a long time, to look at somebody instead of putting them in a box and saying, well, you know, that's such and such a person, you know, I, I know all about them, they like this, like that. But instead say, how would it be to be them and look out through their eyes? And then you say, oh, wait, on the inside, they're, they're really the same as me. You know, they're, they're not any different from me. They're, uh, they have the same things, the same worries. Yeah. And so that's getting close to telepathy. But with full telepathy, what, how would it work? it's really it's kind of a miracle that we can talk to each other because I'm just like this this mammal, and I'm making these these grunts and squeals and and you're hearing them, and then somehow you you trans you transform them in your head into ideas that are maybe something like what I'm saying, you know I'll never really know uh but unless I give a pop quiz you know, <laughs> that's not going to happen so uh it's, it's kind of a miracle that speech even works as well as it does. And telepathy, there's the sense there might be some much richer channel that we could use. And it seems, it doesn't seem impossible.
1: A great Asimov's story where the
0: robot has telepathy. And so then he has to start lying, which is against all the rules, uh-huh. because he
1: feels like he's going to hurt people, because that, that would be against the Asimov's laws, right? So he has to lie all the time about what people think and whether they're in love with each other and all that kind of stuff. Gets himself tangled up in knots.
0: That's always an issue in stories about telepaths, yeah, where you know too much.
1: But it's nice when it's a robot instead of
0: being. Yeah. A robot's the last person who would have telepathy, actually. (laughs) (laughs) But, I mean, it's a good idea for the stories.
1: Uh, Can I say something about empathy? One of the stories that you wrote, was about empathy, and the word empathy came up quite commonly. And it was a really wonderful story. And incidentally, I just want to say we've got thirty great stories, and we're going to give those prizes at the end of this uh, this event uh, to the people that uh, that were. You know, I mean, i will talk about that later. But the point is that uh, empathy is something that I think can happen if you're able to. Uh, define, you know, when I look at Le Guin, Ursula Le Guin, or I look at other writers, I think they create other worlds so that we can, they can actually teach us to understand other people and to start to attend ourselves in, the, in, in a pathetic way. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. Or people understand that other people are different. Mm-hmm, different.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I think the notion of the punk, and I just want to say something about the punk. Punk used to be a word for homosexuals. Uh, it was. just sort of think about what punk is, it's a little piece of, it's like a little wick that you use to light other things and it smokes and it goes out and it doesn't really catch fire. It was thought to be, you're a guy that doesn't catch fire, you're a punk. And so it was used as a derogatory term against uh, guys, maybe like Rudy, but like me, when I was in high school in the 60s, you know, you're a punk. And you're a punk because It was an attack on your sexuality as well as other things, right? So that word grew through the 40s and 50s in in that way. And then punk rock absconded with the word. And cyberpunk took away the word. In other words, it said, screw you. you Mm -hmm. Uh, we're, We're going to control... Our relationship to, you, know, you talked about it in terms of the military and, and whether people thought you were brave or cowardly or whatever that kind of thing because you resisted the military in the 60s. Well, I think that word is really important because mm-hmm. it was a way of, of taking away the power from people that were calling you a name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that was a very popular name in the, in the 50s, and the 40s, 50s. It was a very popular name. It probably goes way back. It probably goes way back to the Middle Ages. Because it's, it, like I say, it, it comes from a physical reality. And so I think that's, that's what, that's what I see happening with cyberpunk writers. They're saying, we're, we're not going to be Isaac Asimov. Well,
0: no, we're garbage, but we're going to be better writers than you.
1: <laughs>
0: it's sort of like the Ramones, you know. Yeah. We're going to play a really dumb, simple song, or, but... Yeah
1: or, yeah, or garage rock and roll yeah. of the 80s cy- of punk rock. Yeah. That was. It was like we will be authentic, and we're not going to be post-produced. But we're that's. We're going to be reproduced and, and re. You know.
0: But that's over now. I mean, you all. You have something else that you are. That's revolutionary. I don't even know what the word is. But. What's that? What, what would young people call themselves these days? Hipster? There's, there's probably some better word. Something cooler than that. You not going to tell me?
1: It's a generational secret. Huh?: It's a generational secret. Uh, a generational secret. The
0: millennials hold out. Well I
1: think that your generation you know, has told me that they think some people are woke and some people aren't. <laughs> <laughs> true. It's absolutely true. Some people get it and some people don't. And they're looking, at, they're looking around them and saying, "This person gets it, and these people don't get it." Mm. And that's the way we were. Yeah. We were saying this, you know, yeah, I was put in jail by a bunch, you know, when I was hitchhiking in New York, and the cops, they basically wanted to hurt me. They wanted to hurt me badly in Schenectady, New York County Jail, you know, and it was because I had long hair and I, was, and I looked like a, you know, a guy that was hitchhiking and maybe used drugs or The point is, you know, there was, different, there, was, there, was a different, there was a different way of dealing with this, and it was a small percentage. The people that were, in my generation, woke. They got it. They understood it. They understood what was happening. And other people didn't understand it. So I think there's a different way. Every generation has it. Generation has it. But, and I think that's certainly true of cyberpunk. Yep. That's what it's about. It's, it's, it's social. It's not just technological, scientific. Just one. looking at the ethics
0: of it. One last thing, I'll just say a, a tiny bit more and then we can do some questions. Yeah. Uh, I've been talking about different styles of writing, and you all have all these stories you wrote, and as I say, I looked at some of them, and I think they're pretty good, pretty interesting, cool. A lot of anxiety around medicine and biology and families, and uh, I just wanted to make a few remarks about how to write, and uh, one is to, well, it's always good if you, at the core of the story, if there's something that really bothers you or that that you're really concerned about. Either in a way of really wanting to do it or really not wanting to do it. So that's good. And then it's always good to have uh, at least two or even three is better characters. If it's just one person talking, uh, it's, it's not as good as if there's somebody else that they're talking to and they're playing off. So that's always good to have a couple of characters. The characters—it's always good. Also, if you can do whatever you can to not have them be stick figures, you know, just you know, a head and two arms, and they're they're talking. So think a little bit about what they look like. And one—a cheap trick that I often do, if I need a character, I'll just pick somebody that I've seen, you know, or that I know as a friend of mine, and I'll just say, well, let's just make this character look like that person. It's like if you're an artist, you'd say, well, I'm just going to use a model and then just copy this model for this figure in the picture. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a bad reflection on that person. And if it is, then you don't really have to show them the story. (laughs) I I did lose a friend once where I showed him a story where I'd based a total asshole on him. and, and, And he noticed, you know. I liked him, but there are these aspects about him, but... But, so you have to be a little bit careful with that. Uh, But, uh, so the characters make them be real. Another thing is, uh, it's often useful if you're not able to write on the story, it's always good to have a notes document, and then there you can write about how you can't write. You know, that's, so you actually, you could have like two separate computer files, and one is the story or the novel, you know, if you ever get to that point. And then you have another document called the notes, and then in the notes you can write down ideas you have for the story. If there's things that you like in the story but they actually suck in terms of the story, then you can cut that paragraph out and save it in the notes. So it's not lost to history. You know, you, you hate to throw out something you wrote. And the other thing you can write a little bit, usually outlines, uh, it's pretty hard to actually do an outline. There's sort of a, it's sort of a computer science issue that you can't actually simulate the process of your writing the story much faster than you can write the story. So it's, it's kind of hard to get a really deep, thorough outline before you've written it. Though some people like to outline and it doesn't hurt. It's anything you can do to get, get the ideas going. So, uh, so those are just a couple of ideas I wanted to throw out there. And So try to use real characters. Uh, try to have more than one character. Have the story relate to something that really bothers you. And have a notes document where you can sort of just write some thoughts you have about the writing. So, uh, maybe we should enter the next phase of this. Sure. This Anybody
1: have any questions? Anyone else? Questions? Any comments you want to make about the writing?
0: Yeah, Provost.
1: Um, you mentioned that one of the things that gives quality to a novel is the texture of the characters. Yes. Like they, they look real. Yes. So. How different is in that sense science fiction from
0: regular fiction? It's not a huge difference, and that's, I feel like there shouldn't be that much difference between science fiction and, and a regular realistic novel. There was sort of, in the 50s, the sort of pulp years of science fiction, there's this feeling, well, we're getting paid, you know, two cents a word. We're not gonna, our readers are, are dullards we're not going to exert ourselves and try to write real literature. But then it's become more a feeling in science fiction that if, if, if you can take the trouble and make it, you know, that level of polish that you have in real literature, that, that's a good thing. And there is something that's happened. Uh, there are a lot of mainstream novels now that are what really most people, what, what science fiction writers say, well, that's a science fiction novel. I mean, if you look at the the books that get reviewed, like on the Sunday New York Times, very often they have some science fiction idea at their core, and but they don't like to say that because if you say something science fiction, that means it's it's crap that's written by morons and it's read by morons. So better not call it science fiction. So uh, instead, they'll say it's visionary, you know, <laughs> or you know, imaginative, illuminating delves into the futures of our ideas. But they don't want to put that word science fiction on it because, you know, it's like calling something punk rock. You know, it means it's no good.
1: What writers have uh, inspired you? Well,
0: my favorite writers are, I love the writer Thomas Pynchon. And not everybody have read him. He's sort of, kind of a, his books are maybe a little bit difficult and complicated, but I, I really love his style, the way he writes, Thomas Pynchon. Uh, Jorge Luis Borges, he's written these wonderful imaginative stories. Uh, he's uh, Argentinian. He was one of the really, the great, great masters. And if you can get hold of a book of his stories, they'll really blow your mind, even now. they it's this interesting thing, you can do something that's like fantasy or science fiction, but it's not, it's not about kings on thrones, and it's not about rocket ships, but it's just about some very strange things happening. And that, those are wonderful. So those are two that I like a lot. Just this week I happened to read Ursula Le Guin's novel, Left Hand of Darkness, that somehow I'd, I'd never gotten around to reading that. Uh, and then, well she died this year, and I thought, it's really high time and that's really a wonderful book. It's one of the best books I've read. Really beautiful book, Left Hand of Darkness. The title, it's sort of a yin-yang thing. It's like a, a Taoist thing. There's this kind of chant they have, and then it says, light is the left hand of darkness, and darkness is the right hand of light. So it's this sort of cosmic unity thing. So that, that's what the title means. It's a little, it's not obvious at first. And it's interesting. Talk about a thought experiment. It's about a society where people, everybody is ambisexual or there they can be either male or female. And only for four days a month are people, they enter this state that they call Kemmer, K-E-M-M-E-R. And that's, uh, with animals, I mean, it's like being in heat in, in the sense that some animals, there's certain times of the year when they want to mate. And, uh, when you're in camera, you go to the camera house, and the other people in camera are there, and then you find somebody you like the looks of, and then you know, you go to bed together, and you might, you might then have male genitalia, or it might be your female genitalia, that sort of come alive. You don't even know, when you lie down, am I gonna be the man or the woman? And usually it works out so there's one of each, you know. <laughs> Not always, but usually. And so that the way that affects the whole society, because anybody is in a way male and in a way female. And there's certain things that don't happen. Like there's no wars. (laughs) People may kill each other now and then, you know, that can happen, but they're never gonna have that delusion, that mass delusion that men can generate that it takes to, to actually start a war. You know, you have to get thousands of people to be completely stupid in the same way at the same time. And if there's, if a lot of the people are women, it's not gonna happen.
1: (laughs) But it's a very cool book, very interesting.